Today's scripture reading comes to us from John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the day of the first week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you are forgiven the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a time of prayer once more. God, as we delve into this passage together, would you speak to us? And may it encourage our souls as you remind us of the hope of the resurrection life that we have in you. So God, we commit this time to you. Thank you. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Author Barbara Johnson once said that we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. I do believe that this is an insightful statement that highlights two things. Number one, our true identity, who we really are through faith in Jesus Christ. And number two, our deeply broken world. Living in a Good Friday world, which is fallen and sin-infested, can be physically demanding, emotionally draining, mentally exhausting, and spiritually discouraging. And as a result, it's easy for us to to forget who we really are while desperately struggling to remain standing in faith. And through it all, we can't help but to wonder, is it even possible for us to live out the resurrection life here and now in this deeply broken and messed up Good Friday world as Easter resurrection people? Last week on Resurrection Sunday, We celebrated the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, you know for sure, has forever changed everything for broken sinners like you and me. And through faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrection life is not just a future promise, but also a present reality. And because of the finished work of the cross and because of the empty tomb, The resurrection living is indeed possible for us even here and now. I think N.T. Wright was absolutely right when he wrote the following words, that our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day. But here's the question. How will you show the world that the Easter story was indeed real, that the empty tomb was real, and that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen. How are we going to do that, church? It's by the way we live here and now. It's it's by, by the way we love and serve and forgive one another. As we delve into this passage together this morning, we'll be thinking about three things. Point number one, the peace that transcends understanding. Point number two, Living with purpose, the resurrection life here and now. Point number three, living with power, what empowers and sustains the resurrection life. Let's jump into the first point together, the peace that transcends 
understanding. Now, during the very first Easter Sunday, things were very different for the disciples. In fact, they were still desperately trying to figure out and trying to make sense of everything, the crucifixion, the empty tomb. They were confused and discouraged. They were, in fact, terrified. And as a result, they were hiding together. And on Easter morning, when the disciples heard an eyewitness report from the woman about the empty tomb, that Christ has, in fact, risen, they thought it was fake news. They didn't believe them at first. Luke chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. They were confused. They still couldn't believe the reports of these women. Although the Gospel of John doesn't mention anything about what happened on Easter afternoon, the Gospel of Luke goes into great details about how Jesus spent that Easter afternoon, and this is mentioned in Luke 24. And according to Luke 24, Jesus spent an entire afternoon accompanying these two individuals on the road to Emmaus. And I would like for us to read this together, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. The very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, uh, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and were before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, the, uh, up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who, uh, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when they drew near to the village in which they were going, he acted as if they were, he was going further. But they urged him to uh, strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and days now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, when he, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. They told uh, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. At first, they didn't recognize who he was. But as verse 30 reminds us, as he was breaking bread with them, 
they recognized those same very hands. They broke that bread on Monday, Thursday, the day before crucifixion, as he was instituting the Lord's Supper, right? Sharing his one last uh, final meal uh, with the disciples. They recognized the same hands, and they realized it is indeed Christ, the risen Christ. But before they can say anything, he vanished. So what did they do? They decide to go back to Jerusalem. It was a long and dangerous journey at night, seven miles long by foot. But they go back because they simply couldn't wait and their carts couldn't contain it and they couldn't remain still and silent. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, the disciples were still together. They were still hiding in fear behind locked doors. And they had been pondering over the crucifixion of the empty tomb um, the entire day, trying to make sense of these things. And even after uh, hearing about the risen Christ, they didn't believe uh, the people's reports at first, right? But while they're talking about these things, Jesus suddenly appears and stands in their midst. And this is the context of the passage that we just read together. Now, I want all of us to take a moment and try to put ourselves in their situation. They're still confused. They're still afraid, terrified, as as we have seen in verse 19, that they're hiding behind locked doors. And in fact, they have plenty of reasons to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus, their Lord, the one they had been following, had been crucified. And Jesus whom they thought to be the Messiah, was publicly murdered. And it was a brutal death for all to see, and they made a spectacle out of it, right? So they're probably wondering, we're probably next. They're coming after us. And also rumors started circulating about the empty tomb. And in order to cover up what will eventually be remembered as the greatest day in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders specifically instructed the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb to tell lie, to tell everybody that it was actually, in fact, the disciples who came and stole the body at night while they were sleeping. And this is mentioned in Luke chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. So with that in mind, the disciples, they were gathered together, but they were tense. They were nervous, terrified, still confused. A knock on the door was the last thing they wanted to hear. And at this point, it was impossible for them to fully grasp and clearly understand the significance of crucifixion, what it really meant, and how it ultimately points to the resurrection. They were utterly confused and petrified to the point that they weren't able to remember the very words of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he did remind them that these things will happen. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And this was Jesus' third time reminding the disciples. But obviously at this point, they can't remember, right? And they're desperately trying to make sense of all these things. Now, this is a, the context in which Jesus appears before them and speaks these words of comfort. What does he say? Peace be with you. 
He calms her nerves. He doesn't say, do not be afraid. He doesn't say, how can you guys not remember? How can you just forget? I've told you many, many times concerning these things. He doesn't say that. He comes into their chaotic, confusing, terrifying situation, and he utters these words of comfort. Peace be with you. He says it again in verse 21. Peace be with you. Eight days later, in John 20, 26, he says it again. Peace be with you. Even eight days later, they were still hiding in fear behind locked doors. Peace be with you. The theme of peace in the Gospel of John is is apparent. And he actually told them about the peace that he would provide to them in, in two separate occasions in John chapter 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That is the world gives, do I give to you. Let your now hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the very situation, the context that Jesus is stepping in. Try to put yourself in their shoes, the disciples, how would you feel if you have just witnessed your Lord and Savior publicly murdered, buried in the tomb, and you don't know what's going to happen next? Confused, terrified. But Jesus comes, he enters into this situation and says, peace be with you. He's saying, I'm here. The Emmanuel is here. The Prince of Peace is here. But get this, guys. Their situation remains the same. But Jesus says, peace be with you. And we can learn a a very important thing here, especially in this passage, and it is this. The peace is not the absence of things that will cause your heart to be anxious, terrified, and confused. But peace is actually the presence of God in the midst of all of those things. And that's what Jesus wanted them to understand. And I do believe that that's what Jesus wants all of us to understand. That peace is the presence of God. Even in the midst of all these things that seem chaotic, the very things that will cause heart to be anxious, confused, terrified. But Jesus is saying, I'm the Prince of Peace. And I'm here. And I'm here to stay. I'm sure as you continue to live in this broken world, you will have situations or even periods of time, seasons, where your hearts will be filled with anxiety, fear, confusion, where where when you look at your life, all you see is nothing but chaos, uncertainty, questions, no answers. But Jesus is saying here, I'm here. Let my presence in your life grant you peace. Not as the world gives, but I am here and I am here to stay as your Prince of Peace. And I pray that that will comfort you. Because situations like the disciples faced, we will have our versions like that. But Jesus is saying, I am here. I am here. Remember his presence in your life. Let's go to the second point, living with purpose, the resurrection life here and now. Paul Tripp reminds us that the first resurrection stamped every believer's ticket 
for the grace and glory of the final resurrection. And this is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 24, as Paul draws our attention to what lies ahead for every single believer who profess faith in Jesus Christ. What is absolutely guaranteed to come is the resurrection harvest. Verse 20 and onward, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So this is what lies ahead for every single believer. Then this is guaranteed to come if you're in Christ. However, the Christian life isn't just about me and you, us, going to heaven. And I think that's an extremely selfish way of looking at salvation. I think J.C. Rye was absolutely right when he wrote that the, selfish, the highest form of selfishness is that of the man who is content to go to heaven alone. The Christian life doesn't just boil down to me going to heaven. There's so much more to that than the Christian life. Pastor Eugene Cho makes the following observation about Jesus during the Holy Week as he entered Jerusalem. And this is what he writes. During the Holy Week, Jesus doesn't just enter into Jerusalem and go straight to the cross. In between, he confronts corruption and hypocrisy, overturns tables, heals the blind and sick, and washes feet, etc. In other words, the kingdom of God isn't just about a ticket to heaven. It's not just about that. It's a very selfish way of looking at salvation. Notice what Jesus does after calming the nerves of the disciples and comforting them with his presence. I am here. Notice what he says to them in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He commissions them. With purpose, he commissions them for kingdom work and for gospel ministry. Every single one of us, and especially if you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is something that that you must remember and take to heart, that every single one of us that we have been commissioned by God with a mission, with purpose, for kingdom ministry, for gospel ministry, for his glory. And this is not calling just for full-time pastors like me and Pastor John and missionaries. This is for all of us, every single one of us. And here Jesus is saying, now it's your turn. I'm going to commission you. I'm going to empower you so that you can continue the work that I have started. We are saved to be sent. God saved every single one of us with a purpose to commission us for this very task of kingdom ministry, fulfilling the great commission. And here's the thing, guys. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of failures, a bunch of nobodies. People who walked away from him when Jesus needed him the most, needed them the most, including Peter, who denied him three times. And if you take a look at this group, there's nothing special about them. But 
This is what Jesus is telling them. Peace be with you. And just as my Father has sent me, I am sending you. And, and in a nutshell, Jesus is saying them, I will change this broken world through you. And I think this is so encouraging for us to see and hear because this means that there's hope for me, there's hope for you, there's hope for us. Just take a good look at the very first the group of disciples that Jesus chose. There's nothing special about them. But yet Jesus used them as he called them and he empowered them and he did amazing things through, in and through their lives. And as you can see, God is the one who enabled them and empowered them. And in the same way, God will be the one who will enable and empower us. And he will also work powerfully in and through us for his glory. And this is something that we need to remember, that that God saved us with a purpose. And he is commissioning us for kingdom ministry. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper writes the following to highlight a very important shift that has taken place from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this is a shift in the missional outlook of God's people. And I quote, A fundamental change happened with the coming of Christ into the world. Until that time, God had focused his redemptive work on Israel with occasional works among the nations. Now the focus has shifted from Israel to the nations. One of the main differences between those two eras is that in the Old Testament, God glorified himself largely by blessing Israel so that the nations could see and know that the Lord is God. In other words, the pattern in the Old Testament is a come-see religion. There's a, uh, there's a geographic center of the people of God. There is a physical temple, an earthly king, a political regime, an ethnic identity, an army to fight God's earthly battles, and a band of priests to make animal sacrifices for sins. But with the coming of Christ, all of this changed. There's no geographic center for Christianity. Jesus has replaced the temple, the priests, and the sacrifices. There's no Christian political regime because Christ's kingdom is not of this world, and we do not fight earthly battles with chariots and horses and bombs and bullets, but spiritual ones with word and the spirit. And all of this supports the great change in mission. The New Testament does not present a come-see religion, but a go-tell religion. And Jesus uh, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and tell. Go and tell. And this is exactly actually what happened on, even on Easter Sunday. Matthew 28, verses 5 through 10. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 7, this is important. Then go quickly and tell. Go and tell. His disciples, that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. Then they departed and, and departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped them. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And even in the Great Commission, which is so familiar to most of us, in, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, even in, embedded in the Great Commission is this go-to-tell dynamic. 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. Go and tell. Go and tell. But this is so comforting because also embedded in the Great Commission is the Great Communion. The God who says, I am the Prince of Peace and I will be with you. And let my presence be that everlasting peace in your life, no matter what situation you face. And he says in verse 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age as I commission you. So you get the Great Commission and the Great Communion in these verses. So we're saved with purpose. Go and tell. Go and tell. But I have some questions that I would like for us to to honestly ask ourselves. When it comes to our Christian life, when it comes to us bearing gospel witness for God's kingdom, what do our lives look like? Do our lives resemble that of the disciples who are hiding in fear, behind locked doors, who are cowering in fear? Is that you? And can you relate? Is that an accurate description of your Christian life? How private is your faith? Is it well hidden behind the locked doors of your heart so that no one can see it, so that it cannot be seen in your life? Something to think about. I heard one pastor say it this way, that Jesus never once said in the Bible to an unbeliever go to church. But you know what he did say repeatedly? But, he just, but Jesus constantly said to his followers, the church, go to an unbeliever. Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell. Right? There was a recent survey conducted by um, the Barnett Group, which is widely considered to be a, reading, uh, a leading research organization that focuses on faith and culture. And the results reveal that this is staggering, this is actually heartbreaking, that 90% of the Christians believe that the main purpose of church is to meet their needs. And I think there's something seriously wrong with this picture. Nowadays, people pick and choose churches, ministries, based on personal preference, based on personal needs. And we tend to behave more like religious consumers and faithful and committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And what's up with that? And sadly, the church is all about them. What can the church do for me? Will this church, will that church, able to meet all of my personal needs? And they get discouraged, disappointed, and upset if the church is not able to do that. And because of this, some people even end up walking away from faith and leaving that church altogether. Less than 10% of the people who participated in that survey that I just mentioned believe that the church primarily exists to reach the lost. Less than 10%. And when they're asked this, following, this follow-up question, what does your church effectively accomplish this goal, reaching the lost? In a nutshell, go and tell, go and share the gospel. 85, 85% of them said no. 85%. And when they were asked, why not, you know what the answer was? Almost all of them said, fear. Fear. 
afraid of the consequences, afraid of what may happen to the relationship, and afraid of what may happen to them in the process of going and telling them about Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Um, as just as Jesus reminded the disciples, peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. I really pray and hope that, that as we continue to cling to God, as we continue to depend on the Holy Spirit who now lives in us, who will continue to enable and empower us, that we will remain faithful to this command. Go and tell, no matter what the cost, knowing that the presence of God will be that source of everlasting peace in our lives. So what's keeping you, what's keeping me, what's keeping us from going and telling? What's keeping us from being witnesses for Christ? What's keeping us from actively participating in kingdom work, gospel ministry for his glory? And these are questions that we must ask ourselves honestly. Remember the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well? This is mentioned in John 4. Do you know what she did? After that intimate, life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ at the well, she left that jar, which pretty much represented all the brokenness that, that, that you can see in her life. She left that jar and she ran to the town, to the very people who have who had, who had rejected her, the very people who have been ostracizing her, the very people who, who, who pretty much say, you're not welcome in this community. She ran to those very people to do what? To tell. To tell them about Jesus Christ. So after meeting Jesus Christ and after experiencing his unconditional love and amazing grace, that's what happens. Go and tell. Becomes so evident in her Life And because of her testimony, many Samaritans in that town came to believe and to know the Lord. The question is this, are you a silent witness? And I want to challenge you, don't be a silent witness. But instead, go and tell. And continue to, to share the gospel the love of God, the beauty of the gospel. And in doing so, let's remain faithful in fulfilling the great commission. I really pray and hope that, that you guys have been growing up in the gospel. But at the same time, that's something that, um, that we can't stop just there. But there's a flip to it, right? Let's grow up in the gospel. But at the same time, let's grow up in the gospel so that we can go out with the gospel, and that's something that we cannot forget. Grow up in the gospel so that we can go out with the gospel, so that we can go and tell. Jump to our last point, living with power. What empowers and sustains the, the, the resurrection life. Verse 22, And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit the source of power that will enable and empower us to live this resurrection life here and now. 
You know, I asked this question at the beginning of this sermon. How will you show the world that Easter story was real, the empty tomb was real, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen? It's by the way you live. By the way you live here and now, right? And on that Easter evening, and this is mentioned in Luke chapter 24, Jesus told the disciples, after he opened their minds to understand the scriptures fully, Verses 48 and 49, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, and stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And as he has promised 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. Now the Holy Spirit will enable and empower you to live out this resurrection life here and now. But there's one other thing that the Holy Spirit will also help us. And that's also uh, help us to live a life of remembrance. And this is very important for us. John chapter 14 verse 26 concerning the Holy Spirit. But the helper, when the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John sixteen thirteen concerning the Holy Spirit again, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, this is very important, and let me explain. The day of the Good Friday, the day before Resurrection Sunday, is known as the Silent Saturday. And much of our Christian life is actually lived here in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. During the Passion Week, as I was reflecting and meditating on Christ and what he has done for us, I came across this um, blog post entitled The Silence of Saturday. And I wanted to share this with you because I do believe that the author does a masterful job of painting a picture of the sobering reality of of a a silent Saturday. But not only that, uh, what it ultimately points to, which is the hope of the resurrection life that we have in Jesus Christ. And I quote, It feels wrong to say that Saturday is my favorite day of the Holy Week, but it's true. It is a day that feels uh, sacred to me, sitting in the gap of tragedy and triumph, resting between death and victory. Perhaps it is my favorite because it feels so familiar. It feels like most of our lives. This is a day when I feel so small and helpless, standing with the cross behind me and watching the tomb before me, where hopes and dreams are buried. I don't think I've ever yearned for the resurrection more than I do these days. Friday is a day of deep loss and confusion. Sunday is a day of fulfillment and joy. But Saturday leaves me sitting with the question, will God fulfill his promises? The answer seems obvious, but it never feels obvious. What it feels like is a, is a pit in your stomach and a tightness in your chest. It feels like a dry mouth and swollen eyes. It feels like an impossible choice, stay or flee. Stay here staring at the tomb where hope is inseparable from reminders of loss and pain or flee from the pain and loss and also the possibility of seeing God do something miraculous. The day between crucifixion and resurrection was the Sabbath, a day built into the rhythms of Israel to remind them to soak in the knowledge that they were not the gods of their lives. They were not to operate under the illusions of control and comfort built by their own hands. The Sabbath was a reminder that even as God rested, he ruled, that even when it felt like nothing was happening in the lack of activity and plans, that God was still at work. 
I think the Sabbath trained their hearts to wait and trust in the silence. Between the anguished cries of Friday and the jubilant rejoicing of Sunday rests the silence of the grave. Our lives are filled with so much noise and activity because we are scared of the silence. In silence, we don't yet know the ending. In silence, we are waiting for a response. In silence, we are not in control. It is far too tempting to fill the silence and move past the discomfort of Saturday. Yet Jesus chose to wait silently for Sunday, separated from those he loved by a boulder and a guard. But it, but it wasn't the first time Jesus chose to wait for a resurrection. When he tarried before, he told his disciples the delay was so that you may believe. Silence has its purpose. Silence intensifies our experience of the injustice and pain of Friday. Saturday deepens the joy and triumph of Sunday. Saturday is so that we may believe. As Christians, we are defined by Sunday, marked by Friday, but we live in Saturday, waiting. And as we wait, lamenting that things are not as they should be, and living and acting with divine hope that one day they will be. Saturday is the day we must each answer these questions. Do you believe a resurrection is coming? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Will you live and obey in the tension, awake to the pain of this world and anticipating of the hope of the one to come? I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in, in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. I think this is so true. Most of our Christian lives are lived out on Silent Saturday, in the silence And there's this tension that we simply cannot ignore and avoid, right? And this is so true to us. And this is what Christian life often feels like for us, right? And our Christian lives are often lived out here, in between anxiety and peace, in between fear and courage, in between confusion and clarity, in between chaos and stillness, in between uncertainty and certainty, in between defeat and victory, in between falling and rising, in between suffering and joy, in between pain and comfort, in between hopelessness and hope, in between hatred and love, in between faithlessness and faithfulness, in between compromise and conviction, in between disappointment and fulfillment, in between weakness and strength, in between brokenness and wholeness, and in between worldliness and holiness. This is the sobering reality of our Christian lives. And this is what our Christian life looks like and feels like. And this tension is ongoing. And if you constantly find yourself living in, be- in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, don't be discouraged. It's actually good that you feel this tension. Because that means that God is at work in your life And that means that that God is doing something in your life even though you may not necessarily be able to fully comprehend and understand. And it means that in the heart of hearts, deep inside, you yearn for the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And on that day, he'll make all things new. And the history is headed that way. And we know how this story will end. But is your Christian life stuck between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? I want you to really think about that. Where am I in my journey with God? And if you feel so stuck, and if this is what your Christian life looks and feels like to you, ask God to help you so that you can continue to move forward in faith with the hope from Silent Saturday to to Resurrection 
Sunday. Keep moving. Because resurrection harvest is coming. Keep moving because you know how this story will end. Keep moving because if you're in Christ, the worst thing that can happen to you is new eternal resurrection life. And that's the worst thing that can happen to you. Spend eternity with God. So with that in mind, keep moving, keep living. In the places that God has called you, no matter how things get tough, keep living, knowing that each passing day is just another step toward eternity with God. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, uh, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. How will you show the world that the Easter story was real, the empty tomb was real, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen? Why We just talked about how you live, right? Even in light of these tensions that you face, experience, but also how, by how you love and forgive one another. Francis Schaeffer, he said that the love is the final apologetic. In John 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This command was given on Monday, Thursday, day before Good Friday, day before he went to the cross as he washed the feet of the disciples, and as he was instituting the Lord's Supper, sharing his one final meal, intimate meal, uh, with the disciples. But in the midst of that, day before the cross, this is what he said to his disciples. I want you to be marked by love from now on, so that when they see the way you love and forgive and serve one another, they will know that you are my disciples. John chapter 13 actually begins this way, and I hope you will remember that. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to, to depart out of this world to the Father, he, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He will be with you until the end, and let his presence continue to be the source of unchanging peace and comfort and hope in your life but not only that, always remember that he will love you until the end. He will be with you until the end. That he will never, ever forsake you nor abandon you. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's ask God to help us so that remembering that God saved us for a purpose so that we can be sent, let's continue to go and tell. Go and tell the world about the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's go and love the people around us as we depend on the Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to, to love and serve, minister to, encourage, and even forgive those around us with the heart of Christ. And let's continue to go and live out the resurrection life. I think when sinners come together, it's, it's hard to maintain unity, let's be honest. It can get messy, very messy. But when you come across that temptation to want to to break fellowship with another believer because of whatever tension you may be facing, I want you to remember this. 
that Jesus' body was broken so that we can be united as one body. But in our sinfulness, we keep breaking the body of Christ. So with that person that you're struggling with for whatever reason, don't break fellowship, but break bread together. That's what Jesus did the day before the cross. And on that cross on Friday, Good Friday, he demonstrated the perfect love for us. And this is the the, the kind of love that he wants us to exhibit and reflect as we go out into this broken world, as we continue to live in this Good Friday world. But remember, we are Easter people, resurrection people. And a day is coming, right? And we know how this story is going to end. So brothers and sisters, knowing that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that conquered the grave, now lives in you. So we have nothing to be afraid of. So let's go and tell. Let's go and love. Go and forgive. Go and serve. And let's, with courage and boldness, without shame, Let's live out the resurrection life for his glory and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are with us and you are for us, never against us. Father, would you continue to be with us? Life in this Good Friday world is so difficult. But Father, knowing that you are with us, And because of the the hope of the resurrection life that we have in you, and because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we know that this is possible. So may we continue to cling to you. And Father, would you continue to work powerfully in and through us to further your kingdom so that we can continue to go and tell, to go and love, to go and serve, to go and forgive, and go and live out this resurrection life in the places that you have called us to be. God, we love you. Cannot thank you enough for being who you are in Christ. Let me pray. Amen.